1891 with Bowdrin and or Barry, where Barry, our motto here on this fine podcast and in our group, Breaking Cafe with Bowdrin and Barry, uh, and if you're not a member, as Barry likes to say, why aren't you? I will just say that here on this fine podcast, one of our mottos is we can talk shit about our brothers on the Arcadian Vanguard Network, but by God, Barry, you better not talk shit about our brothers on the Arcadian Vanguard Network, or perhaps you won't be let in the group, even if you try one, two, three, four, five times to get let in. Uh, no. Hold on. That's my stamp. Denied. Yeah, it's kind of sweet, too. And, of course, the person you're referring to, I don't oh, believe. That, was I referring to a person, Barry? <clears throat> you were. You were. I don't believe uh any of these people that were involved. And in case you don't know, you know, Jim Cornette sometimes, uh, who is our brother on the Arcadian Vanguard Network, as Jeff just pointed out, Jim Cornette always t- typically can make some very pointed comments. And uh, apparently he ruffled some feathers recently. Someone, not the individual in question, someone came to the defense of that person and made some disparaging remarks regarding Jim's mother and then, of course, tried to backpedal. Anyways, this person has been trying to get in our Facebook group. We're assuming to stir up all kinds of shit. And, yeah, five times, Jeff, is that where we're at? Well, we're at a five? Right now at the time we record gotcha. this on uh, Thursday afternoon. So, you know, between now and the, the day the uh, show actually drops uh, at 930, <laughs> oh, no, not, not, at 10, uh, no, not 10, uh, 10.30, no, not 10, uh, sometime before lunch, hopefully, uh, we'll uh, have uh, an update on how many times this individual has tried to get into our group. So this very, very special episode of Breaking Cave. You know, very, we're now at this point, uh, nine episodes away, uh, a little a over two. Special episode. When you say that, it, automatically I feel like one of us is going to get touched by an uncle. Yes, well. Do, yeah. do you, we're hopeful, but do you, do you remember those days when we were Where's growing your up? Been, mister? <laughs> I don't know. And, and they would do the, uh, ABC after school specials yes. and they would always start off with that same line. On this very special episode. What's your favorite after-school special? I've never asked you that. Do you remember anyone specifically? They were always, uh, they always dealt with. Scott Mayo found drugs. uh, Right, right. It was either drugs or going down a path or some sort of, uh, forced sexual nature and some, they were, it was never, they were never happy, these after-school specials. I don't really remember one. I, uh, yeah. It was always like uh, Scott Bayo. Uh, here's another. Remember Lance Kerwin? That I remember. What was that like? Something at fifteen. Remember uh, James at fifteen. James which, at which, fifteen. By the way, was a great show for its time. Uh, you know, a young kid working his way through high school and stuff like that, and he was just kind yeah. of an ordinary kid. Great show, and uh, it kind of tapped out after maybe two or three seasons. But anyway, uh, I digress. The reason we have a very special episode, while we went really off the uh, rails there, Barry, yeah. uh, of Breaking Cave Fable with Bowdrin and Barry, is because today we have kind of a theme show, Barry. We have, as our guest today, a legend in the wrestling business, if you will. Yes, it's get me a doctor, Barry, as David Lee Roth once said. Dr. Tom Pritchard joining us here on Breaking Cape with Bob Turnberry and in a rather timely manner because today our match of the week is Dr. Tom Pritchard taking on the dirty white boy who is joined at ringside. No, not by the dirty white girl, but by Lady Mystique, who is actually the dirty white girl. I have no idea why they called her Lady Mystique at this time. Besides all that, Barry, we're going to be looking at perhaps the most controversial angle 
not just of the 80s. This is one of the all-time most controversial angles. Uh, yes, it's the, uh, uh, can you can you please get Tom for me, please? Uh, you know, the dirty white girl and the uh, spousal abuse angle, which leads to the hanging of Dr. Tom Pritchard. Oh, it's good stuff, Barry. Uh, plus, uh, let me just say at the top, Florida man or not will be included in this week's episode. That's everyone, uh, Sweet Lou. Uh, Barry Rose, this should be a fun-filled, jam-packed episode. Sounds like we have a lot here, too. And I'll tell you what, dirty white girl. You like you like a dirty white girl, do you? I do. I was a fan. What I was a Lady fan. Mystique? Oh, it's the same. Yeah. Now, was that a name that she used, uh, I guess, prior to Dirty White Girl? I'm not sure, actually. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. And uh, I'm sad to say these two are no longer married, the Dirty White Boy and the Dirty White Girl. I am friendly with her on Facebook, Jeff. Maybe we need to get her on to discuss this angle at some point. I, I would be in favor of that. Yeah, I don't so, know if she would, but we could <laughs> certainly give it a shot, though, right? Well, but, I'll tell you what, that leads us into, before we get to our match of the week, uh, and uh, quite frankly, as I was uh, telling the guys before we started recording, not sure exactly of the date of this particular match, uh, but it, I, I know it's 1988 because it's when Eddie uh, Gilbert was the booker, and uh, they had, had a short, very hot revival uh, in Alabama and in continental wrestling. Let's talk about this angle, though, with uh, Tom Pritchard and the Dirty White Girl and the Dirty White Boy. What happens, for those of you that have not seen it, is uh, the Dirty White Girl, uh, her name Kim, wasn't it? Kim Anthony, yep. Kim Anthony comes out to speak to uh, the announcers, and uh, she's got the uh, the eye that appears to be uh, blackened, and she says, may I, may I please speak to Tom? I really need to talk to Tom. Uh, a little while later, uh, reluctantly, Tom Pritchard comes out uh, and she says, uh, Tom, I, I really need your help. And he's like, look, maybe you need to get to uh, to some sort of marriage counselor or or, or something like that. And uh, this, of course, uh, leads to the dirty white boy attacking Dr. Tom Pritchard from behind. Uh, this ultimately leads to a, a, an incident as if the, the whole spousal abuse angle wasn't bad enough, Barry. Then uh, the dirty white boy brings out the rope. And he hangs Dr. Tom Pritchard from the uh, the ring post. Uh, and uh, it kind of goes on for a, a bit of a while there, Barry. So, Barry, what would you think of this angle, first of all, as a start? Uh, let, me, let me ask you. Uh, hold on. Let me uh, quantify Sure. That. What did you think of the angle in 1988 and through the – how you like this phrase, Barry? Through the lens of 2023. What do you yeah, think? That, that was a question that I posed to Tom as well. And then the other aspect of that also is, you know, how does this angle play to the people where it's airing, Alabama, North Florida, et cetera, versus going national? Like, I, I don't think somebody in maybe New York City or Chicago, L.A., is going to view this angle the same way. Uh, certainly some people might, but I, I think it's different. When, when it happened, it was shocking. And I remember this was one of those angles that you'd have to pay $50 to John McAdam for a eighth generation uh, uh, video. How dare you? Of, How, oh, well, yeah. Am I a liar? Arcadian, he's our Arcadian brother, but we can take shots at him. Please. Am I lying? Okay. <laughs> but <laughs> but I thought you were going to say you had to pay $50 for something else, Barry. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's yeah a little bit less probably. I think the tapes were more than that, but it was uh, – I remember getting, and I, I, I am kidding, John, because I was able to get a copy, I forget from who, and it was shocking. And I, you know, the funny thing is when I saw it, the hanging part didn't, 
I guess it didn't disturb me as much as the domestic violence aspect of it. And uh, I remember watching it and thinking, wow, this is controversial. I don't know. I, I you know, I, I don't know how I feel about a wrestling angle built off. And I realize what wrestling is and, you know, what it's all about. But here's a wrestling angle that's being built off of the supposed abuse of of one of the 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 the, the valets or whatever she was called at the time, Lady Mystique. So that really disturbed me. The hanging part at the time, for whatever reason, I don't think really registered. It was hardcore, don't get me wrong. But at the same time, I think we had seen so much in wrestling where, you know, a man could do something to it. I mean, fucking Eddie Gilbert, you know, I don't know, maybe a year after this, maybe it wasn't, got got run over. He ran over Jerry Lawler with a car. Remember that angle? So, Oh, yeah. Yeah, there were all these angles, but it, it never – it never seemed to cross the line to me because it was male on male violence, which is what professional wrestling was to me. It's what I was raised with. It's what I knew. So that didn't register. And when we asked Tom the question, and I remember in my head, I'm thinking, so what was it like with this angle? And he didn't even touch on the dirty white girl with the black eye, it was more the hanging aspect. So made me wonder, was that just something I was focused on? And uh, his response is great. I The angle is good. I mean, I got to tell you, if I – I don't love – let me break it down into two parts. I don't love the fact that she was used as somebody – can I talk to Tom? That is good. It's, it's so funny, too. It, well, it's not funny, but it's funny the way that she does it. But I just, I never loved trying to get heat based off of beating up a woman. It just seems in this business of professional wrestling, which we already know can be very sleazy. It can be very bottom of the barrel. I just never loved it. I, I somehow give a pass to the hanging aspect, which probably seems weird, but at the same time, if I was booking this territory, I could see, you know, this is, this is smaller towns and stuff. This is a smaller territory. I could see where this might generate ticket sales. And I think well, Tom's well, got the answer to that, but it's, it, it is disturbing though. I mean, I, I can't take away. It was disturbing in 88. And even now when I watch it, and it, maybe it's a little more comical because I understand everything that's going on and it's been 35 years. But at the same time, I don't think I can give my stamp of approval to it, Jeff. Well, okay. Let me uh, offer a, a few different things here. First of all, compare this angle of a hanging with the Kevin Sullivan blackjack mulligan angle that was done in Florida in, I don't know, 84, 85. Compare those two angles. Which one did you think worked? Which one didn't? Uh, which one was uh, more egregious, if you will? I think I think the one done in uh in the Gulf Coast whatever southeastern was was done better. Overall it was probably done better because it was maybe more unexpected. I think with Sullivan at that stage too, you know, throwing ink in the uh the eyes of Dusty's sister and 
fireballs and golden spikes and you know Sullivan was doing everything he was and at some point I think we were coming becoming desensitized a little bit like what's Kevin you know is he going to have a gun is he going to shoot somebody you know I think we were getting a little desensitized to it I wasn't watching Southeastern Continental on a weekly basis by any stretch so seeing this was a little bit shocking it was you know it was just something that was shocking the hanging part, I do think, was done better in Continental as well. So, you know, I, I know that we have people that you and I both know uh, that tend to look back at all of CWF with, like, these rose-colored glasses that everything, even to the bitter end, was this glorious, glorious prom- – no, it wasn't. I'm sorry. And I freaking hated – the Kevin Sullivan blackjack hanging angle because, you know, it, it's like, yeah, I get it. We're wrestling fans. We, we want the, uh, you know, the sport aspect, the, the comic aspect. There's, there's all these different things that make up professional wrestling. I get this, but ultimately if you're watching a hanging angle, okay. Are you really going to be like, Oh yeah, I want to go to the arena next week to see uh, the guy who was, was getting hung. I want to see him get his revenge on that guy. I, I just don't think, or, or, you know, the, the kid that's 12 years old. Hey, mom, can I go down to the West Palm Beach auditorium to see Blackjack get his revenge on Kevin Sullivan? Well, why, why is he getting revenge? Well, you know, Kevin Sullivan was hanging him. Like what parent using this time frame now, mom and dad might join him. I don't know, but you know, what parent is going to go? Oh, sure. Jimmy, you know, that sounds like a great thing for a 12 year old to do. And that's the thing, you know, you have to have a, uh, a an angle that's going to, first of all, compel people. It's one thing, you know, to see, uh, you know, two guys jump, jump one guy and, and you get revenge on him, you know, because they, they beat my ass or something like that. But th- that was just so over the top. Okay. And I can't imagine if you showed this angle with uh, Tony Anthony and Kim Anthony and Tom Pritchard, if you showed it to somebody who maybe just started watching wrestling, okay? So let's say somebody who's in their early 20s, who's not a huge wrestling fan, but just started catching on within the last year. And, hey, let me show you this angle from, a you know, 35 years ago or whatever, and I want to get your thoughts on it. And I can't imagine them sitting there going, hey, that's great stuff. Okay, can you... Can you show me the, the follow up match, which was just, and, and not because, you know, the, the guys did anything wrong. I'm just saying in this landscape that we live in now of 2023, I don't think that would appeal to a modern wrestling fan, a fan in Alabama in 1988 when this angle took place. They might have been like, hell yeah, we're going to see Dr. Tom kick dirty white boy's ass. You know, I, I think it's a vastly different landscape. And I think that has to take into a, you know, you have to take that into account. Now, you know, the whole spousal abuse angle, I, I, I want to say, I can't remember if this one, the observer, like most tasteless angle from that year or not. I'm sure it had to be pretty uh, close to the top. And, you know, like, like Dr. Tom tells us later when we, we talk to him, it's like they, they didn't even think about that. This was just like, Hey, let's go out and, and, and do some wrestling stuff. And, uh, you know, get the people's attention that are watching at home and get them to come into the matches next week. I mean, I completely get that, but I just, uh, I can't imagine 35 
plus years later or 35 years later, people looking at this the same way. I, I let's put it this way. I can't. I certainly can't imagine Vince doing this on the WWE. No, yeah. But but you know, like okay, let's compare and contrast. AEW uh, did an angle uh, a couple weeks ago at the time this show come out where uh, they have Chris Jericho and the guys from the JES uh, jump uh, Adam Cole. And then they have, uh, you know, Britt Baker come down and they basically start, you know, putting the boots to her and, and they kind of beat up on her. So is that fair game because she's a lady wrestler and they played upon the whole real life relationship of those two? Or is that still going over the line? What do you think? I, I, I got to tell you, I don't in any world. I just don't want to see men beating up women. I I think to me I again professional wrestling has got it's probably not as bad now but I mean you knew as we were kids growing up the reputation that professional wrestling had and certainly as you have said numerous times uh the closer you get you know the farther you want to get away from it the more you learn it it, it can be a dirty business the last thing I think this business needs is uh angles where men are beating up women or even using it to to get heat. I just, to me, nothing good can come of it. Again, I'm fine with it. You know, if it's, I'm not fine with it, but if this is taking place in, in a, you know, if Jim had done this in Smoky Mountain, granted we were all getting tapes and seeing it, but at the same time, the goal was to produce television for a very local crowd to sell tickets. So they go to the arena. And if something like that resonates, then that that's fine. I don't, you know, I, I'm not going to tell you I like it, but at the same time, it's a business that's working, but you know, th- there was the angle. I'll say it was 10 years ago without knowing what the time it's actually longer, 10 to 15, but, uh, when the wrestlers from NXT took over Raw one night, they were called Nexus. And Daniel Bryan, Bryan Danielson was a member of that group and they, they stormed the ring. They beat people up. They beat up the ring announcer. They ripped up the mat. They made, it was a great angle. I don't think it went anywhere, which is what a lot of the angles back then were doing. But Bryan Danielson, and I think it was the ring announcer. He uh he wrapped a cord around his neck and threw him over the top rope and was hanging him. And they fired Brian Danielson for that. He was brought back three, six months later. But they actually terminated him for hanging somebody on live television. I don't think it was Vince's moral conscience that did that. I think it was the sponsors or the network, you know, demanded it. They did bring him back and, you know, he went on to become a world champion, et cetera. But I, I, I think there, there's going to be a line. And again, I think as wrestling fans and you and I are 50 years plus at this point, I, I kind of feel like at times we are desensitized to it because we've seen so much and it's like, yeah, we know it's a work, but somebody from the network, my God, you're hanging somebody on live TV. You've got a woman coming out saying she was just beaten up by her boyfriend or husband. Like that shit could never play today, in my opinion, Jeff. Well, and, you know, you made a good point because what they were doing was selling this to the folks in Alabama. This was not on WCW or or the the WWF that is going a more national scope. Uh, you know, they are uh, trying to get people in, uh, you know, Pensacola. And, uh, Dothan, Alabama and Birmingham. Uh, so, and, and I'm not disparaging any of those three fine communities, but 
you know, it's not like they're selling this to an audience that's going to, you know, from uh, Los Angeles or New York City or a major media market. And if they're impacted, you know, if a, if a sponsor on Continental Wrestling objects to this angle and calls up the promoter and says, I object to this, you know, it's, it, chances are, no offense, it, it's going to be Bob's Supermarket and Dothan. It's not going to be, you know, Pepsi or Coke right. that are going to, you know, cancel their uh, their ad revenue. So, uh, you know, and one of the other things to consider is, you know, you, you talk about what's a great angle and what's a bad angle. You know, you and I have talked about what uh, some of the our favorite angles of all time were. OK, there's a difference between Ted DiBiase, Ric Flair and Dick Murdoch shooting a great angle in Mid-South that was well executed. All three guys did their job. It made for superior television as a wrestling fan. But essentially, the angle really didn't mean a hell of a lot at the box office. JYD and Ted DiBiase was a license to print money in Mid-South, okay? Dusty Rhodes turning babyface during, was it, 74 and CWF? That was a license to print money. That was an angle that made money. You can have angles that are well done and that people that are wrestling fans enjoy that don't mean shit at the box office. My question is, I wonder how much this uh, Tom Pritchard and Tony Anthony and Kim Anthony, how much money did this kickstart for the Continental promotion? And I think, unfortunately, I think the answer is probably not a great deal. I, I would agree. Oh, I think Tom even says that too. It just, yeah, it, but I understand the logic though, because I, I yeah. would have thought, I, you know, sometimes you're throwing shit against the wall to see what sticks. Let's yeah. Be honest, yeah. You know? And I, and I gotta say, if I was in my head, if I was viewing this angle 35 years ago or today, the first thing in my head was, man, I bet it was a fucking packed house the next week. Right. But apparently not. Well, and you know, but again, you're thinking through the eyes of a, of a, a longtime wrestling fan, as right. opposed to the example that I use, 12 year old Billy, his mom is maybe not going to want, uh, his kid to go to the wrestling matches. And, and you, you know, I, I'll, I'll tell you something, uh, just as a little corollary. I remember, do you remember, uh, when, uh, God, Dusty had left, uh, and they kind of started pushing superstar Billy Graham and CWF. Oh, and, yeah. And Kevin Sullivan turns on, on superstar Billy Graham. And they did the whole thing where Billy Graham did this promo. And it was a fantastic promo, okay, where he's like, uh, I have gone into the desert like Jesus yep. of Nazareth, and I've, tri- I've tied myself to the stakes. And I'm watching it, and I'm going, this is freaking fantastic. So I go over to the girl that I was dating at the time, who uh, her parents were very Christian. And I'm trying to explain this angle to her parents. And they're looking at me like I've got bugs crawling out of my skull. Like, <laughs> what in God's name are you talking? So, you know, that's just an example that that angle is not going to get your Christians to come running in to the, you know, through the, through the doors and get front row seats in St. Pete. You know, it's just like sometimes an angle that wrestling fans really, you know, are like, wow, this is great stuff. It's not something that connects with an audience. And one thing, you know, you give the devil their due. Somebody like Vince McMahon, he knows uh, and he he knew how to uh, appeal to mass audiences with some of his angles. And frankly, some worked, some didn't. Some worked tremendously, okay? He also had some stinkers, okay? Guys, uh, you know, Eric Bischoff uh, in WCW, who I fucking can't stand. But, you know, he hit on this one idea, the NWO, 
fucking took it, ran with it, made a shit ton of money. You know, respect him for that. Also, then fucking lost a shit ton of money. But, you know, it's like, what is it that what's the angle that's going to happen that is going to be so good that it's going to appeal not just to wrestling fans, but people that aren't wrestling fans that are going to bring those people in? You know, Stone Cold Steve Austin, that whole you know, Austin 316 started bringing it. That's a, you know, religious, uh, connotation to it because, uh, he was kind of making fun of Jake Roberts at the time. But, you know, those are angles that brought in people that at the time maybe weren't wrestling fans and, you know, lit the territory or the promotion on fire bear. Yeah. You're, look, you're what you just said. You're a hundred percent right too. And it's check. that check that that was really we haven't we uh we wanted to give that a little bit of a rest and uh let it come back and uh and be the way that it was supposed to be but it is look professional wrestling has always been very secular and even though you had people that were breakout as far as being bigger than wrestling like gorgeous george jr andre the giant the truth was vince was the guy that really took it to the next level and uh whether it was inviting people to wrestlemanias or or getting his talent on television shows and movie etc it it took it out you know and i hate to use that term right it took it out of this smoky arenas i fucking hate when they say that but that that's professional wrestling in a nutshell. We'll always be, much like you and I and Sweet Lou are the bastard. This podcast is the bastard stepson of the Arcadian Vanguard Network. Professional wrestling will always be as well. You know, the crazy part, if you look at the WWE, AEW, whatever, the fact that they're drawing all this money on a nightly, weekly basis, it's insane. You know, it's absolutely insane. With that, it'll never get the respect it deserves in any form. Well, and you know, and should for, it for for those uh, listeners that are uh, under a certain age demographic, if you will, you know, you can't even imagine being a wrestling fan and seeing Hulk Hogan in a Rocky movie. You know, right. uh, you can't imagine turning on Saturday Night Live and friggin' Hulk Hogan's on Saturday Night Live, or you know, later when when The Rock hosted Saturday Night Live. You know, and you're a wrestling fan and you're going, holy shit, this is crazy, you know, and that's where, as I said, giving the devil his due. Vince McMahon, I, I don't know if he brought it out of the smoke filled rooms as much as he made it appeal. Uh, he certainly sanitized it to a great extent. Uh, and he made it much more about the, the personalities and the actual matches and, and things and, and even, you know, the, the programs, because let's be honest, you know, during Hulk Hogan's and, and we're getting back to the, Tom Pritchard stuff, I promise. But Hulk Hogan's first run as world champion was really not about who he was facing, you know, and no disrespect to guys like Paul Orndorff and, and, and stuff like that. But it was more about seeing Hulk Hogan, you know, and, sure. and, and going to the matches and being able to hold up that foam rubber finger with, you know, Hulkamania on it and waving it at him. And, uh, you know, that's what it was about. Anyway, let, let's, uh, let's get back to, uh, this, uh, this thing with, Tom Pritchard and a dirty white boy. So let's segue not so smoothly this week. Every once in a while it happens to our match of the week where we're talking, uh, Dr. Tom Pritchard versus the dirty white boy with, uh, the dirty white girl, aka Lady Mystique in his corner. Dr. Tom Pritchard, uh, coming out with the, uh, the wanted dead or alive t-shirt on. He's ripping off a little Bon Jovi, uh, a big favorite of Barry Rose's, by the way. So Barry Rose, you've had a chance to watch this match. Tell the folks what you thought about it. 
So it's a good match. There's, uh, you know, a Dr. Tom, I think is, uh, I think most of his notoriety and most of, uh, what he's got as a legacy is going to be the fact that a lot of people thought that he was an imitator of Roddy Piper, you know, and that kind of stuff. But he was really good on his own. And and you see it here to some degree, right? But it's not crazy. You know, I think that was probably more when he was a heel. Dr. Tom could do it all. He was solid in the ring. Uh, it, you know, it was a way above average. He was a very good professional wrestler. He was a good promo. And I'm not sure why he never got the bigger break in his career. He wound up working the South. I know he was in the Federation. He was uh I, I forget he was in a tag team, I think, with uh Chris Candido, maybe. I don't you know, I know, but they they didn't do a whole lot with him. Uh they didn't use his real name. You know, he just never got these breaks in wrestling, but I'm hard pressed when I look at the guy. I'm hard pressed to think why, you know, he appears to have everything going for him. I always thought the dirty white boy was fantastic. I like the grapplers. I like the dirty white boys. I always thought this guy had something again, took him up to the Federation. I think they called him TL Hopper. And they gave him a plumber gimmick, which was uh, just embarrassing. But here was another guy. He could do it all, whether it was a, a really great promo or interview or a good match. He was capable. So you've got, in my opinion, two of the really underappreciated talents of the 1980s into the early 1990s. And they pull off a really good match. And it's a really successful angle that we're talking about right here. So I, I don't know. Is it a game changer? As a match? No, it's not. But does it, you know, again, I bought into it. I, you know, that that's probably what I should have said right from the beginning with this whole thing. It, living in Florida at the time and, you know, bouncing around the country, but then watching this again, I buy into what these guys are selling. This is very believable professional wrestling to me. So, well, and, you know, here's a phrase that we've used more than once. This is a fine example of Southern-style wrestling. You've got a uh, a heated program. Uh, you've got the, uh, you know, obvious, uh, I don't know if it was a street fight or, or whatever, but, you know, the guy's coming in jeans and boots and stuff like that. You know you're going to get color. Two guys that were an example, you know, we talked last week about guys like uh, John Tatum and Jack Victory that could have made a living you know, five or 10 yes. years before this work in the Southern circuit and guys like Tom Pritchard and Tony Anthony, although they were, you know, successful in their own right and both made it to the Federation, which was the place to go to at the time, they were more well known for their runs in, uh, you know, other territories. I friggin' love the dirty white boy in Smoky Mountain, you know, yep. with, with, uh, Ron Wright. Uh, and the whole, uh, you know, where he would wear the, the New York Yankees jersey. That was just absolutely hilarious to me. And, uh, you know, he was a, a good brawler. I thought he was very underrated. Um, the pride of Bucksnort, uh, Tennessee, I think, uh, just really good stuff. And he was one of those guys, you know, we talked about Tatum and victory like this. These two guys, you could, you could put them in WCW. Okay. Or the WWE and put them in the middle of the card. And you're going to give the, uh, the fans a, a really good match. You're going to give the, you know, they're going to go, Oh, Hey, this is going to be a good match. Let's watch this. Now, are these guys Hulk Hogan or, or, or the rock or Steve Austin? No, but these guys are never going to go out and you're, you're never going to say, wow, these guys are just the drizzling shits, man. That was a horrible match. 
so many, uh, you know, stuff I, I could tell as a wrestling fan where the move was missed. No, these guys are going to go out. They're going to put their time in, put their money, get their money's worth. Uh, they're going to, you know, the fans are going to be, uh, in tune to the match and wanting to see what's happening. Uh, this, plus you got the added element of, uh, Lady Mystique at ringside, uh, distracting, uh, you know, Dr. Tom and, uh, dressed up, quite frankly, in a somewhat alluring outfit. I'll just put it out there. Uh, but, um, so this is a good feud. Good program, two guys kicking the shit out of one another, you know, uh, in a in an old uh, street fight. Alabama and Continental is a place that we have not visited that much, uh, quite frankly, because there's not a lot of, uh, you know, there are clips out there on YouTube and, and different, uh, you know, uh, services or, or whatever. But there's not a lot of full matches, you know. That's one thing, right. like Memphis or the WWE or WCW or Crockett, you get a lot of full matches. You don't get, sometimes you get like, oh, the last five minutes of a match or something. So it's kind of nice to be able to see uh, a match like this. And, you know, this is not a 25 minute match by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a, a good look at, uh, what they were, you know, uh, selling to the fans in Alabama in 1988 that would get the people to come to the matches. Uh, and, uh, it was good stuff. And again, like Barry said, is this, uh, you know, we always use the standard. Is this Masawa and Kobachi? No, but. It's a good look at Southern wrestling in 1988 as the territories were gradually beginning to slip away. Uh, and then this, this was really in a lot of ways, Alabama and Continental's last stand was Eddie Gilbert coming in there. And, uh, Eddie Gilbert, uh, man, Barry, in 1988 as a booker in Continental, Eddie Gilbert was, you, you talk about throwing shit against the wall and seeing what sticks. There was a lot of stuff that was sticking to the wall. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't long-term stuff because, eh, quite frankly, Eddie Gilbert as a booker was known to hotshot quite a bit. Uh, and, uh, he was doing that. There was some stuff that really, uh, you know, appealed. Uh, there was stuff that wasn't. So he, remember he made, was it Pez Watley? He made Willie B. Hurt. Yeah. That, I never understood that. And, and let me say, I, you're right about Eddie Gilbert and the hotshotting. Like if there was one critique, of his booking. And we got to say what I loved about Eddie Gilbert as a booker was the fact that at no point did you ever question about how much he loved professional wrestling. And some guys take the job for the control of it. Uh, guys want to be a booker because they can push themselves. They can push their friends. They look at it. Eddie Gilbert, you and I both know, grew up from day one as a small child wanting to be a professional wrestler. To me, it wasn't about that. I mean, he guy died in Puerto Rico, right? Like he wasn't, it wasn't about the money for Eddie Gilbert, though I'm sure money played a part of it. Don't get me wrong. It was about the love and you don't always see that. And what I liked about his booking is you could, you got the feeling this was a guy booking from his heart, right? Like this was a guy that truly was booking because he cared and with that, I'll never understand Willie B. Hurt because Pez Watley at that point had a name. Yeah, you certainly had a name. I asked Rocky Johnson this question years ago, and, and then I'll, I'll tell you the question, then and I'll give you the answer. And I said, so Rocky, why did they book you in Mid-Atlantic as Sweet Ebony Diamond when, you know, it, the mask basically was had the chin cut out you had the tattoos on your chest your physique was pretty you know it's pretty recognizable and even your trunks and your boots the same style you've been wearing for years and rocky's response was well 
they never came out and said it was me, but they wanted everybody to know it was me. And I didn't quite understand that at the time. Uh, down the road, I absolutely understood it. But with this, I don't understand. Why would you take Pez Watley, who could probably sell you quite a few tickets based off of his name, and why call him Willie B. Hurt? That made, yeah. didn't make any sense to me. Yeah, yeah and Pez Watley, uh, a few years before that, had been on uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling. Right. Had, had been on WC, uh, you know, the NWA slash WCW on TBS. So, again, like you said, this was not a guy that, like, oh, uh, you know, you're getting some random guy and you're creating a character around him. And uh, I think he also did a guy, uh, didn't he make somebody like uh, the D.I.? Yeah, uh, like, he did. He, like a drill instructor guy. Uh, they did that whole thing. So, yeah, Eddie was just trying everything. And let's give credit. Uh, yeah, Paul Heyman was there, and I'm sure Paul was uh, was helping Eddie out with some of the ideas. But anyway, getting back uh, to uh, Dr. Tom Pritchard, let me tell you one last thing about Dr. Tom Pritchard, uh, and then we'll throw it to the interview with uh, with him. Dr. Tom Pritchard was one of us. He was a guy that was a wrestling fan, and he gets into this in the interview, but he was a wrestling fan that found his way into the wrestling business. And, you know, it wasn't easy because there were people that told him he wasn't big enough. He was too small. And he managed to go out there and he, by God, he lived the dream, man. He he worked L.A. He worked, you know, uh, Portland. He worked Tennessee, Alabama. He had, did he ever did he ever do any uh, any shots in Florida, Barry? Just kind of popped into my head. I don't, I don't even know the answer to that. Dr. Tom never did a shot. Okay. Uh, and then, as Barry said, he went up and wrestled in the Federation for a number of years. Uh, you know, I, I think his brother still works there. Uh, yeah. Uh, Houston wrestling, uh, you know, he, he grew up, uh, as he talks about in the interview, as a guy that carried jackets, uh, back to the dressing room for the boys. Uh, so this guy, for anybody that listens to this show that always sit there and thought to himself, man, I wonder what it would have been like, uh, as a wrestling fan to get into the wrestling business and become a wrestler. Dr. Tom Pritchard lived that dream, and God bless him for it. And right now, at that point, Barry, why don't we go to our interview with a friend of the show, Dr. Tom Pritchard. You know, Barry, the great David Lee Roth, once said, somebody get me a doctor, and by God, we've got one today, Dr. Tom Pritchard. Joining me and Barry here on Breaking k with Badger and Barry, Dr. Tom, welcome, sir. Anybody who quotes David Lee Roth is an instant friend of mine. I love little Dave in my life. <laughs> so, well, like we like to do, we like to start at the beginning. And Dr. Tom, I know that part of the beginning of the Dr. Tom Pritchard story and pro wrestling was in your youth, uh, like what, five, 10 years ago, you had right, the opportunity right, right. to watch Houston wrestling with Paul Bosch. Tell us about that. Well, actually, I started watching uh, championship wrestling uh, from West Texas in El Paso, where I was born. And then I was 10 years old. Uh, uh, we moved to Houston, Texas, and that's where I got familiar with Paul Bosch and Houston wrestling. And he had some of the greatest matches and some of the greatest stars of the time from Wahoo McDaniel, Johnny Valentine, Gary Hart, Jose Lothario. It goes on and on. The great Malenko. I mean, for the stars of that era, uh, they all passed through not only West Texas, but East Texas as well. And uh, growing up, uh, we didn't get a chance to go to the matches in El Paso as much because they were on a Monday night, but uh, Friday night was Houston's night. And when we moved to Houston, my mom wanted to get out of the house. She took both of us, my brother Bruce and I. We went uh, every Friday night, which eventually turned into 
meeting Paul Bosch, taking pictures for wrestling magazines, being a second, um, and finally being Paul's assistant at ringside every Friday night up until the time I wrestled. I worked in the wrestling office when I was 16 years old every summer until I graduated, and then I started working full-time, and that, that just included running errands, picking up people from the airport, taking people to the airport, doing all the uh, ins and outs and things that a guy who wanted to get into wrestling did to, to get into wrestling back then. What was that like for you, though? I mean, being a fan, so growing up as a kid, being able to see, you know, West Texas, and I think El Paso was Gory Guerrero's town. Uh, Correct. Yeah. If yeah, so being able to see that, and obviously then growing up as a wrestling fan, then actually working and being able to interact with all these guys, what was that like for you? That's that's not what I would term a normal childhood, but yet how exciting, right? Uh, it was awesome. It was awesome. I, I wanted to be in the business. Wanted to be a professional wrestler since. Uh, uh, since I can remember and, and I, everybody points to four years old and that's, that's my first memory too, you know, coming into, uh, our living room in El Paso on a black and white TV, seeing four guys in the ring, having chaos during a tag team match. It just hooked me immediately. But as a kid, uh, it was exciting. It was, uh, especially as a teenager. And now I'm, I'm interacting uh, with the people that I was watching in the ring and, and watching growing up, wanted to emulate and uh, it was cool. I can't, I can't stress how cool it was. I can't stress how exciting it was. But it was something that not everybody got a chance to do. But uh, we made it happen. And uh, getting to go on Friday nights, no school on Saturday, uh, it, it made it a lot easier. But I still had to uh, put my 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 foot out there, my, my life out there actually and tell Paul Bosch, I wanted to be a wrestler. And all I heard was, well, you're too small and you can't do this. Well, that didn't deter me too much. And uh, I think you saw my enthusiasm for wrestling. And, um, it, it was, it was, it was one of the coolest, uh, life experiences ever, especially as a wrestling fan. So one of the things, uh, you know, Barry and I both grew up, uh, in the state of Florida watching, uh, championship wrestling from Florida. And there was always, you know, the, the guys that sort of captured you more. And, you know, like me in particular, I was a big fan of Bobby Shane. Uh, I was a big fan of Jack Briscoe. So was there one particular guy that, you know, whether it was when you were in El Paso or whether you're when you were in Houston, that was like the guy that you were like, yeah, this, this is the guy that, uh, either I want to be like or the guy that really has sort of captured my imagination. It was more the family. It was the funk family, Dory Sr., Jr., and Terry. Uh, uh, they they were the kings of West Texas, and it was right after Dory won the championship in 1969 that we had to move to Houston. And I saw Dory as a baby face, a good guy, you know, past the, the whole time. But uh, when we moved to Houston as the champion, he, Terry, and, and their father, Dory Funk Sr., would come in as heels. And it just gave me a new uh, aspect and a whole uh, outlook, if you will, on how wrestling was. You could you could be a persona, you know, on the other part of the state, and you can be somebody else on on the on the on the east side. So, yeah, the Funk family was my uh, favorite. Were, were my favorite wrestlers growing up. So you mentioned one thing uh, when when you were talking before about you know the things you did, uh, you know, within the office for Paul Bosch and at ringside. 
you know, Barry and I, each week we do a match of the week that we go back and we look at. And we've done, uh, you know, more than a couple of matches from Houston. And one of the things that always kind of struck me as being kind of interesting is the whole, not just the ring attendants, not just somebody that's carrying the robes or what, or sitting at ringside. But in Houston, one of the things that was particular was you had guys that were sitting in different wrestlers' corners. It wasn't a manager. It was just a guy that was sitting in their corner. And I don't know that I've seen that in any other territory. Do you know how that came about? I, I don't know how it came about, but those were the seconds, and those were the guys uh, uh, designated to take the ring jackets back. And I got to be one of the seconds when Tommy Fouché or Pat Hatchell, Pat was the uh, babyface second, and Tommy Fouché was the uh, heel second. And when they would go on vacation or couldn't be there that night, I got to take the stuff back to the locker room. I'd put it on a chair right outside the door. I wasn't allowed to go in yet, but... I respected everybody's privacy, and it was kind of cool. And if you look back on some of those Houston uh, matches from the 70s, you can see me actually sitting next to Paul. And uh, there's a match we watch all the time in our classes, uh, Terry Funk versus Harley Race, 1977 in Houston. We've done that match. uh, (laughs) We did it, yes. If you you look on the left-hand side, you can see... uh, See me sitting there, 17 years old, right next to Paul, watching this match. And here we are almost, uh, God, over 40 years later. Now, that was and, before uh, you got your doctorate, correct? Well, that is true. That is true. Before <laughs> I went uh, to, to, to be a doctor, yes. Gotcha, too. So if you're just joining us, we are joined by the legendary, and that's not a term that we throw around, but uh, the legendary Dr. Tom Pritchard. He will be a guest with our old friend Nick Massey. You know him as the captain. Captain's Corner Happy Hour coming up Sunday, May the 7th. Dr. Tom will be joined as well by up-and-comer Kenzie Page. Kenzie Page, if I'm correct, Dr. Tom, one of your students as well? Very true. Kenzie actually started wrestling at 14 years old. Her father is a promoter uh, in uh, Sevierville, Tennessee, and he put her in the ring at a young age of 14 years old. She came to us at 16. Our age limit is usually 18, but she had experience. She was uh, very mature, and uh, she had a lot of respect for the business, still does. And she's now wrestling for NWA. She's a former Women's World Tag Team Champion and just won the Women's TV Championship, the inaugural NWA Women's TV Championship uh, a couple weeks ago. So she's she's doing really, really well. She's turned 21 recently, and uh, they're over in Australia at this time. So when she comes back, she gets to... Uh, uh, Come with me on May 7th with uh, Nick for a virtual signing. Good. And that'll be a lot of fun, too. We have uh, Nick is a good friend of both of ours, and uh, we have dealt with Nick many times. Honest as the day is long, great guy to work with. This will be a lot of fun. Jeff and I have joined several of these happy hours as well, so we'll definitely be keeping an eye out that. So I wanted to ask you, you know, living in El Paso, moving to Houston, you get your break and then you're off to Los Angeles. And you know, Los Angeles, I'm, I'm guessing you were relatively young, 18 or 19 when you made your trip there. I was actually 20. 
20. Gotcha. What was that like, though, heading to Los Angeles, which, you know, I, I moved out, strangely enough, I moved out to LA when I was 20 as well, and I just absolutely loved it. I mean, it's just a gigantic, you know, you can drive from one end of LA to the other, and depending on traffic can take you four hours, but everything on the face of this earth seems to be concentrated in some form in LA. So, Taking out the wrestling aspect, what was it like going, let's say, from Houston to Los Angeles at such a young age? Well, I got to tell you, uh, when I went there, the Olympic Auditorium was still running. Now I think it's a church. And uh, everybody called it the Madison Square Garden of the West Coast in the 70s. And that was kind of a trip in itself for me. But I, I drove all across Texas and hung out with my brother who was still living in uh, El Paso. and. Uh, and then I took the trek all the way through, and it was just, it was an adventure. Uh, I knew this was where I was going for something that I loved and something I was just waiting to take hold of and taste. You know, I wanted that, I wanted to bite that apple. I wanted to, to see what it was all about. And you're right. Anything and everything was at your fingertips in uh, Los Angeles. I went down to Grounds Chinese on Hollywood Boulevard and and just walk the streets. You know, some nights you, uh, there was a place called the Ivar Theater in Los Angeles back in 1980. Are you familiar? Oh, oh did you hear me? La- yes, I am yeah. familiar. Now, when you went to the Ivar, I'm curious if it was showing the same content as when I went to the Ivar. Well, let me give you just a small taste of what happened. I used to wrestle in San Bernardino every Sunday night, and I was a white meat babyface. And, of course, you always had your good guy fans and bad guy fans. So uh, uh, there were these. Uh, there was a married couple in the front row who would give me living hell every Sunday night. And a friend of mine, Tom Abdu, and I, Tom came by and picked me up and says, man, we're going to go to the Ivar Theater. I had no idea. <laughs> so we go, we go, and the guy at the ticket booth or whatever had green hair and uh uh you know tom and i had uh we had read scripture before we went you know so i was i was in, immersed in scripture if you will uh when i was going to walk inside and uh so i'm seeing aztecs temples you really like were this. a white meat baby face weren't you? oh my god oh my god <laughs> So uh, anyway, we get in there and we're sitting down, and of course it's, it's a long runway, and uh, you're seated uh, below the runway, and you you watch the magnificence walk down that runway, and I see this girl with uh, I don't know, I, I didn't recognize her, but it looked like she recognized me. Well, of course, of course she did. At least that's what I thought. And anyway. Tom says to me, hey, I'm going to be right back. So he goes, and about 20 minutes later, he comes back and says, hey, one of the girls here uh, is married to the guy outside in the ticket booth, and they go to San Bernardino every week. They're the ones that, that hate the baby faces, but they want to know if you want to come over to the apartment after this, after this is done. I said, of course, and uh, it was Lloyd and Lisa Lee. They've been wrestling fans for a long, long time. They've since split up, but uh, Lisa was in a girl punk rock band last i heard and lloyd's still out in uh lloyd's now in portland i believe and he goes to a lot of the five shows but but the ivar theater was a trip uh for a lot of reasons it was everything it was it brought the essence of la to me about the essence of hollywood to me it's 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 you know i like i like a little sleaze on my coffee now and then <laughs> so jeff i have to i have to set the he's being 
he's being a gentleman. He's being a true doctor. I just want to know if he, he, when he went back to the apartment, if they read scripture with Lloyd and Lisa. <laughs> yes, yes. All night long we read scripture. Let me tell you. <laughs> I think Dave Flaherty yeah. has read that scripture, Barry. So yeah, yes. So Jeff, let me set the stage for you with this place. It was uh, the Ivar Theater. I think going back to the 30s and 40s was this well-respected theater. It fell into disrepair in the 70s. And then by the late 70s or early 80s, it became essentially a strip club. They didn't serve alcohol, and I'm pretty sure they didn't serve alcohol. What made it unique was you paid your entrance fee, and I'm guessing five or ten bucks, but they encouraged you to bring your camera and take photos of the strippers. So a lot of, yeah, so you would go in here, you pay your five or 10 bucks and you're, you have to give the tip, obviously a few bucks of a tip, but these girls were dancing. They would graphically pose for you while I, while on stage and you never saw anything, especially I, I was there once and I remember, I think a Japanese tour bus pulled up right up front and literally there's like a hundred Japanese guys running around with the cameras, just taking photos of these women. <laughs> it was, it was literally, I've never seen anything ever like it before or after Dr. Tom, I was out in LA 10 months ago, 11 months ago, and I walked by the Ivar. Uh, I was with my girlfriend. I did not just go into detail like I just did for obvious reasons. But with that, it is still in business. It is no longer doing the stripping nudity aspect. I think they do hip-hop shows, and there's a recording studio in there now where they're doing some sort of recordings as well. So kind of cool. This historic building is still there. Yeah, yeah, I I heard that they even had the Merv Griffin show in there a couple times, but I don't I don't know if that's true or not. I, and I knew nothing about the cameras. I don't think uh, I don't think I could have been uh, focused that night anyway. So, <laughs> well, yeah. you were reading scripture after all. Yes, after all. yes, we were. Yes, we so were. so you mentioned uh, the Olympic and stuff like that. Uh, of course, a very historic venue uh, in pro wrestling history. When you get there, what's your initial view? Was it in fact the Madison Square Garden of the West at that point? <laughs> it was. It was mythological, if anything else. It was so <laughs> cool, just just because it had that old time feel to it. That was built in the thirties too, I believe. And for the boxing, and and they might have had wrestling at the Olympics there, but I doubt it. It, it was more of a boxing arena, and it just had this ambiance of it. And when you go down in the locker rooms, the locker rooms, if you've seen Pulp Fiction. That's the same locker rooms. I think they they just, you know, that's the hallway where they follow uh, the guys after Bruce Willis kills the guy in the boxing match, and that's the Olympic Auditorium. It just had this this feel to it that you knew all these great, not just wrestlers, but boxers and, and entertainers had been in there, and, and uh, you, you, you're now in the same space and same uh, same place that all these great matches took place with John Tolis and Freddie Blassie and, and just, just the, the ballyhoo that went along with it before I got there. It was, it was everything I expected and more again for the ambiance, especially in the locker rooms, you know, it, it just, uh, just had a great feel to it. It really did. So when you're out on the West coast, was it in Los Angeles or I know you did some, uh, you know, you did a run in Portland and stuff like, where did you meet Roddy Piper? I met Piper in, uh, Fresno first night. Uh, my first, my first shot out in the West coast of food of Fresno. 
And Roddy came in uh, raising hell because somebody had left him abandoned the night before and didn't give him his money. And, and he was just ranting and raving. And in the middle of that, he just he looked at me and said, hey, Roddy Piper, nice to meet you, kid. Hey, and then he just went on and on and on. So, uh, yeah, I met Roddy in, in uh, my first night in Fresno. Gotcha. And again, if you're just joining us, just tuning in, we are joined by the legendary Dr. Tom Pritchard. He will be making a public appearance along with Kenzie Page, big star with the NWA currently. They jointly will be with our old friend Nick Massey, the captain. Captain's Corner Happy Hour coming up Sunday, May the 7th. You'll want to be there for that. Dr. Tom has got stories. We're getting some of them right now, which is great, but uh, I got a feeling you'll be getting more. So, Dr. Tom, moving to L.A., there were some great restaurants back in the day in L.A. Now, I don't know what kind of money you were making working for the LaBelles in 1980. Uh, well-known payoff, men. Well, yeah, well-known. <laughs> well known. Maybe, maybe not, but at the same time, you, you had it in an out burger. Have you ever had it in an out burger? Of course, of course, of course. But when I was there in L.A., uh, during the eighties, we were eating a lot of Korean barbecue, Al Madrill and chief running hill introduced me to the Korean barbecue in Los Angeles. And it was incredible. And then I went to Japan. Uh, one of the reasons I didn't want to leave LA my first year, I mean, we, nobody was making money. The territory was down. It, it was, it was just a place to get some reps in and be around Hollywood, be around Los Angeles, be in the sun and fun, man. And I was, but, uh, the, the thing was, I, I got to experience a trip to Japan after my first year there, and it, it was a connection that uh, uh, I didn't want to lose. I got to work with Fujinami in the Olympic, and then I got my tour in six weeks, and I went over with Patera, the Samoans, and uh, Bobby Duncan, and it was a great, great tour. Bad News Allen was on that tour too, so uh, it was it was it was a lot of fun, man. It really was. Gotcha. And my last food question about L.A., do you remember a fried chicken company called Pioneer Chicken? Yes, at Pioneer and, Chicken, too. Yeah, so I loved Pioneer Chicken. I lived out in L.A. in the mid-'80s. I didn't have a lot of money, and uh, Pioneer became like the staple for me. I could feed my face for like three or four bucks. I still get out to L.A. once every couple of years. There are only two locations left, but I got to tell you, it's still just as good. Jeff, you had a you had a question for Dr. Tom. No, we, you know, he, uh, Dr. Tom just mentioned that uh, when he was over on his tour in Japan, he went with Ken Patera, who, of course, will be joining us uh, for our Fan Fest in uh, Tampa coming up here. Oh, Barry, in a couple of weeks. Uh, Ken Patera, one of the great uh, characters in the history of pro wrestling. Uh, do you have a quick Ken Patera story you could tell us, Dr. Tom? <laughs> well, again... I'm now 21 years old, going over to Japan, eating Korean barbecue, and just having a blast, man. Well, I, you know, Japan's a different culture and, and, and different place altogether. And I remember we're watching the matches, and somebody's asking for an autograph, and Patera's standing over there, too. And I, I say, okay. And when I do, everybody rushes over, and Ken got so hot. I'll never forget it, because he gave me the eyes that could kill us. And now look what you did, idiot. And I went, oh, my God. So uh, that, that was about the only story. But Kenny, you know, I've heard stories about him being kind of a grumpy guy and things like that. He was he was fine over in Japan that time, except the time, except that one time when I said, sure, I'll sign it. And there they all just rushed and went, oh, man, did I make a mistake? Uh, before so. I throw it to Barry, did you enjoy your tour? I happen to have been lucky enough to have gone over there uh, in 1987 
uh, for a, uh, and I got to see both the New Japan and All Japan shows while I was there. Did you enjoy your time in New Japan? I loved, I loved it. I lo- see that was the adventure for wrestling. I mean, going to different places, foreign countries, uh, di- seeing different cultures, seeing different people. Yeah, I loved every minute of it. It was great. Gotcha. So you spent a lot of time in L.A. You're primarily known for the Southeast, whether it was Continental, coming over into Tennessee. When you worked in Continental, you were part of, and I bet this is a question you've been asked probably a thousand times. But that Wait a minute. Con- this isn't the first time he's going to be asked about this situation. You know exactly where I'm going with this, Jeff, because I remember seeing this going, holy cow, did they just do that? But the whole dirty white boy, dirty white girl angle, certainly, I, I bet, again, you've been asked that a million times, no doubt. In hindsight, how do you look back on that angle? <laughs> well, well, I tell you, it was, uh, it was our idea. It was my idea to do the hanging because Eddie Gilbert had just taken the book and uh, thinking about it back in that, in, in that day, that era, I didn't think it was that big of a deal, but I guess coming away from it, you know, saying things like maybe you should see the right crisis center or something like that. Maybe that was, <laughs> right. maybe that was a little too stiff, but, but it was just something that kind of came out and I wasn't really, didn't know it was going to get picked up, but um, it was wrestling was supposed to be violent. It was supposed to be outrageous and it was supposed to be outlaw and, you know, all, all my heroes have always been outlaws, and, and I, I thought that's that's how outlaw do you get? Handcuffing somebody's hands behind their back and hanging them, uh, even on a wrestling program. But I saw, I got the idea from watching a guy n- named the Hangman put a noose around Nick Bockwinkel's neck in El Paso and, and beal him from post to post. And I thought, oh, my God, he's going to kill him. Well, we all know Nick didn't get killed by hanging, but... Uh, or didn't die by hanging, but but I just thought it was a a pretty vicious, violent angle, and that was pretty much what wrestling was built on in the South, you know, blood and guts, and and that's what we were going for. So that's I, I, th- I thought it was kind of cool back then. Then all of a sudden, I heard we got this backlash about domestic violence and things like that. Well, in the context of professional wrestling, all was fair, I thought. Well, so it, here's that you make a great point with that too. So was that backlash? Was that coming locally, or was that people out of the area? In a sense, did this angle really resonate with the fans and sell tickets? Doesn't really no. matter what what somebody else you know halfway across the country thinks. How did it? How was no, it locally for you? Well, locally, we we had just moved to the fairgrounds from Boutwell Auditorium, and for I think they were re renovate renovating or reinventing, whatever you want to say, renovating the new Goutwell Auditorium. And uh, we, we were at the fairgrounds, so it really didn't uh, necessarily draw on Birmingham. I mean, it got a lot of attention, but I think it, it might have turned some people off at the same time. So looking back on it, I can see where I, I had people come up to me and says, I remember when the white boy hung you and I was crying and my TV and my mom made me turn it off. And I thought, oh, God. So we, we accomplished what we wanted. But we didn't get a lot of tickets being sold to Birmingham at that time. The rest of the territory was healthy, but it was, uh, you know, a lot of Eddie Gilbert bringing in new guys, new new people. He brought Paul Heyman in with him during that time. So there's a lot of stuff going on. You know, one of the first times uh, I can remember on a national scale seeing you, uh, Dr. Tom, is when you had a chance to uh, – be next to Gordon Soley on Georgia Championship Wrestling, and you were doing the color commentary. Can you tell us how did that all come about where they brought you in to do the color commentary with Gordon? 
I think Piper had got stabbed at that time in the Carolinas, and uh, I'd just come in, and uh, I think it was Ronnie West who suggested putting me out there with Gordon, and they did, and that was, that was a learning experience. That was another avenue to look at, and, and I certainly did, and with Gordon, he was a lot of fun, and I got to know Gordon pretty good later on at Continental Championship Wrestling, but... Uh, back then it was, it was a matter of who we're going to put out there. Well, let's try this kid. And for whatever reason they did. Gotcha. And it, the comparison, as I get angry and just throw my headsets down. The, uh, <laughs> yeah, it happens. But the, the comparisons between you and Piper throughout the years as well. How do you, how did you feel about that? Were you flattered, well, honored? Here's the thing, man, because you know, you're always looking for something and I've known Piper for a long time and he doesn't, he doesn't like people imitating him. But at the same time, when I started cutting my promos later on, that's, it's how I felt. And, and Roddy was such a great guy, such a cool guy. I thought who wouldn't want to be like Piper. And yeah, it was, it was intentional at the same time. It, it was natural for me. And, uh, Roddy, my dad had a heart attack like many, many years ago. And Roddy called the, the house checking on him. And I happened to, Bruce and I both happened to be home and, uh, I answered the phone and, uh, so Roddy started talking and we, we went over what was going on with my dad. And then I said, Hey, Roddy, listen, man, I just want to let you know, uh, if I wanted to copy anybody, it was, I figured I'd copy the best. He says, no, man, it's all good. Just keep doing what you're doing. You're doing a great job, which that was the kind of class he had. Cause he knew nobody could outdo Roddy Piper and wasn't trying to outdo him at all. I just, it was something that I was feeling something that, uh, was coming more natural as I was being a heel. It just, it kind of came and because Roddy was like that inside and outside the ring 24 seven. I mean, he was a little more low key and he was, he was just that cool guy and nobody could be, there's no, there, there will never be another Roddy Piper, but it was something that I just thought if I'm going to do it, I might as well do it like, like the best. You know, Barry, uh, before I, I get to my next question, I just wanted to say that I, I can't remember anyone ever calling Roddy Piper in any way low key, but anyway, that's just uh, that's just me. No, you're so, right. You're right. <laughs> so, uh, first of all, Doctor Tom, we are super, super appreciative of of you uh, giving us uh, your time and and talking about your career. You know, trust me, with all the different places you've gone to and all the things that you've been a part of, uh, I could spend a lot more time uh, with you discussing some of the aspects of your career. But uh, as we get close to kind of wrapping up uh, our segment with you, one of the things I did want to ask you. At the very beginning, we mentioned uh, Paul Bosch and, you know, Paul Bosch maybe telling you that you were a little too small to get in the pro wrestling business. But, of course, Paul Bosch, very respected, uh, you know, from everybody that we've talked to as a promoter, uh, as a payoff guy. You also, you know, went up to Portland where you work with Don Owen, who was, you know, reportedly very honest with the payoffs to the boys. Maybe he didn't get rich, but he was very fair on the payoffs. And then you work with LaBelle's. So I'm wondering – how did you find going from Paul Bosch to working with the LaBelles? Well, I was, I was pretty young back then. I really wasn't uh, smart to, to the way Mike worked, but everybody else was. And, and uh, somebody asked me that one time, I said, you want to say, uh, you know, between how, how would you describe Michael Bell? And I said, Oh, the devil. And, I said, no. and then I thought that's a little stiff, but you know, but, the business wasn't really doing that great when I got there, but he had done business before. And I had heard all the stories from Al Madrill and Tolis didn't talk so much about it, but, but Mike, this was one of those guys that, uh, 
wasn't very well trusted, and there was a sharp contrast between him and Paul Bosch. But I didn't have as much interaction with Mike. It was just uh, basically show up on Wednesdays and Fridays, and you know he was uh, he wasn't as interactive as he as he probably was before, and I don't think he was as respected as he once was. But uh, I mean, I, I had a good time wherever I went, and I was determined to have a good time in Los Angeles. Like I said, you know, Hollywood was right there at my feet, and uh, every time I'd come from Van Nuys, you see the Hollywood sign uh, right there to your left. And I'm going, holy Christ, this, it just doesn't get any better than this. So, um, you know, Don Owen, another great guy like Paul Bosch. And, uh, and and that's that's difficult to, or that was difficult to say for a lot of promoters back then. But I'm, I'm very fortunate and was very fortunate for, for guys like Paul and Don because uh, they showed you that, that there were some good people out there. Gotcha. Well, we have been uh, really fortunate to have Dr. Tom Pritchard joining us today. One more time, you can actually interact with Dr. Tom. He is going to be working with our old friend Nick Massey, the captain. Captain's Corner Happy Hour coming up May the 7th, just about a week and a half away. He'll be joined also by current uh, NWA World's television champion, Kenzie Page, uh, who is also one of his students. They will be doing this happy hour jointly together. I know that a lot of our listeners uh, tune into all the happy hours. They're a lot of fun. Uh, they'll be doing autograph signings. There will be photos. Dr. Tom, will you have any gear for sale on this happy hour? I am looking for gear right now. I haven't found any, but I've got a few more boxes to go through, so I'm not sure yet. But I know, I do know, uh, I think we're going four hours. Are you sure? Do you know what time we're starting by chance? I, so he doesn't have the time listed, which means he's still working that out. Nick okay. does seem to go. I mean, he's all over the board with it. I would expect it's 5 or 6 o'clock, though. But we're going to keep all of our listeners informed as far as the time as soon as I hear back from Nick, who coincidentally well, is actually out in Los Angeles right now. Outstanding. Well, I, I can tell you this. I've got a few more boxes to go through. I got rid of some stuff years ago before, uh, and uh, – I don't know what I have left necessarily, but I do know that I have a lot of stories and a lot of stuff to talk about. Uh, so, yeah, please do check it out. And Kenzie, she is amazing. She has got a tremendous future in this business. That's somebody you really want to take, uh, keep your eyes out for. Well, Dr. Tom, I tell you, you know, uh, this has been a great interview, and yet we did not even get into your time in Smoky Mountain, uh, WWE. Any way we could twist your arm, put you in a hammerlock, and uh, convince you to come back down the road with us uh, for a guest appearance? Anytime. You got my number. Appreciate it, brother. You got it. Right, for a little change of pace, we're not only going to do a Florida man story, we're going to do a, a bullshit or not story. Oh. Are you ready? Yes, we haven't had a good one in a while, but I, I was going through the old calendar today and saw it, and I went, oh, this is right up Barry Rose's alley. What could it? What could it be that I'm going to talk about? All right. Ooh. Only the shadow knows. Barry, the first headline reads, teacher busted for hosting student brawls in class. Florida. Courtesy of your friends at the New York Post. Middle school teacher has been arrested for hosting student (laughs) fights and letting her kids brawl in the classroom. Wow. Angel Footman, 23, allegedly allowed kids to sock each other senseless. That's the Post with the always good creative writing. As she looked on from her desk, sometimes telling kids not to record the blows or attract attention by screaming and yelling. Heaven forbid. Several sixth grade girls alerted administrators 
after Footman turned her classroom into a secret boxing pit. What's the first rule of Fight Club, Barry? You never talk about it. Of course. A little sixth grade narcs. Yes. Uh, anyway, staffers were also presented with several videos shot late last month that showed Footman stationed at her desk while students hammered each other. The footage showing showed her laying down the rules of engagement. That's nice. The rules, you know. She's got rules. Yes, of course. Telling participants not to pull hair. Uh, there's no groin shots, uh, you know. Uh, Don't pull limit, hair. Yeah, and not to <laughs> uh, and to limit their clashes to thirty seconds each. The oh. outlet reported. Barry Rose, Florida man or not? I I was saying Florida. The first line of this story. Absolutely, Florida. The answer is, in fact, ah, you are right, Mr. Rose. <laughs> it's no. Tallahassee. The home of Florida State University, you know, they, they kept Jameis Winston in school there for years, so we should know better. So anyway, go. now, Barry, let us get to a little bullshit or not bullshit. I saw this one, Barry, and I said, ooh, this is right up Barry Rose's alley. <clears throat> Barry Rose, which of these true, uh, these two stories, I'm sorry, one is true, one is false. Tell me which one is bullshit, which one is true. Uh, story number one, man arrested for selling pot while in line to buy legal pot. Recreational marijuana is now legal <laughs> in Chicago, but the lines are long, so one entrepreneur started selling pot in line at the dispensary sure. and was quickly arrested. The second story, men seeking medical pot bombard gynecologist's office. Men usually have no reason to go to a gynecologist, but many are making an exception after they found one that prescribes medicinal marijuana. Barry Rose, I know this is a story near and dear to your, uh, near and dear to you. Thank you. I am not talking today. So because of your interest in <clears throat> certain, uh, pharmaceutical <clears throat> products. Yes. Which one of these stories is bullshit? Which one is true? I'm going to say the bullshit story is men going to gynecologists for weed. I, there's just something about that. I mean, it's a bit, you know, there's some variables to this story, obviously, but I'm going to say that one is bullshit. The only reason I would say that's not, that seems the most outlandish of the three scenarios. I'm still going to say that's it though. Okay. So you are going with, uh, the guy in line getting busted as the true story. Yeah, exactly. Okay. The correct answer, Mr. Rose. Yes. The second story about pot is the real real one, as reported by ABC News on uh, November 3rd, 2017. Mr. Rose, you are wrong. Don't. Barry, still more Florida man or not headlines. What? Yes, because we are givers, Barry, as we have well established in approximately 647. No, no, maybe not that many. But anyway, the headline reads, Barry, <clears throat> man steals school bus, puts dead deer in it, Gets naked during police chase. This is an ordinary day around here, you know, Barry. Sure. Obviously a member of the brothership. The uh, story uh, continues, Barry. Uh, the suspect left the vehicle following a pursuit during which he nearly flipped the bus, according to police. Officers said they later detained 25-year-old Tony Saunders, who told them he planned to use the dead deer as fertilizer. According to a crime report. Published on its website, police uh, were informed at 7.10 a.m. local time about a stolen bus that had been observed. The bus had been reported stolen uh, when officers asked to be on the lookout. The uh, officers spotted a school bus in a, uh, a food store parking lot with its lights repeatedly switching on and off after it had matched the description of the stolen vehicle. They began to pursue it. Barry Rose, is this a Florida man story or not? I'm going to say no. This, for some reason, is screaming Kentucky to me. 
What it should scream to you, Barry Rose. Yes, sir. Is your home state of Pennsylvania. Woo! Do you know where Carroll Township is, Barry? I have zero idea where that is. Well, guess what? Now we've alienated all our listeners in Carroll Township. Shout out to all you good folks. Don't blame me. Blame Barry Rose. All I got to say is, is there another podcast that's number one in Panama? Come on. (laughs) Correct about that, my friend. Numero uno. Former, you know, deposed dictator, General <laughs> Manuel Noriega. Noriega. <laughs> a huge, huge listener uh, uh, during his time in, in prison. I don't even know if he's still fucking alive. But if I he was going to say, he's probably he's dead, isn't grass. he? He's listening to Breaking K-Fabe with Baldrin and Barry, or as he calls him, E. Baldrin, E. Barry. You know, he doesn't fucking waste his time with McAdam, with Solomon. He doesn't even fucking care about Jim Cornette, which is an outrage to some of our listeners, I know. The next story, Barry, on our Florida Man or Not segment. Man arrested after hiding gun in Taco Bell quesadilla, police say. The story goes, Devin Mitchell folded the gun into the quesadilla when police stopped him and his driver, Olivia Neff, for a traffic violation, officers reportedly saw Mitchell stuffing the handgun into a Taco Bell bag, prompting them to conduct a search of the vehicle where they found the gun hidden in the Mexican meal. Mitchell found himself slapped with other charges after police also recovered. I'll oh, get a load of this, Barry. All right. You're going to be stunned as to why he may have hidden the gun. Uh, police also recovering meth, liquid heroin, and drug paraphernalia. Oh. I know you're stunned, Barry. Florida man or not. Uh, ooh, heroin. Yeah, yeah, this is Florida. Yeah. Picayune, Mississippi. Barry, you're like over two at this point. It's that's norm. It's the norm. It's it's getting a little embarrassing, quite frankly. The people in the group are starting to talk, Barry. That's all. They're just now. Just Just now. now, Yeah. Barry, our last story. For this segment, who knows, maybe before we uh, record again, we'll come up with something else to pop on. Because, again, it, we're givers, you know. But this one, Barry, I thought was especially apropos. Excellent use of the word apropos. <clears throat> Man with gun tattoo on face arrested for gun possession. Oh, Barry, sweet, sweet irony. A man with a gun tattoo on his face has been arrested for illegally possessing a gun. Michael Vines, who is federally prohibited from possessing a firearm, allegedly tried tossing away a loaded 38 caliber revolver after a recent car accident and was spotted by firefighters responding to the scene. Uh, the firefighters alerted the police, uh, which provided the details uh, of the rest on the department's Facebook page. Police officers recovered the weapon and charged him with unlawfully carrying a firearm in addition to driving under a suspended license and driving too fast. It's always good when you have a suspended license. How many times have I said this, Barry, to be driving too fast for conditions, especially when you're carrying the loaded 38 people work with me here. Try thinking a little bit. Oy vey, Barry, Florida man or not. I haven't I haven't gotten on base yet. I am going to say a lot going on with this story. This could be Florida. I'll say this one is Florida. Yeah. Greenville, South Kakalaki. It's the Palmetto State of South Carolina, Barry. And you are wrong. Barry, one last Florida man or not segment because we're nothing if not what? I, we're givers. But, Jeff, my record lately is right in the shitter. 
Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. You've been consistently inconsistent. The final headline, Barry. All right. Bear breaks into a woman's car, drinks 69 cans of soda. <clears throat> Let's see here. It says, uh, a woman. Bear breaks in car. <laughs> a woman. 69 cans. So it's like, this is caffeine bear is where yes, you're going exactly. with this. Not okay. cocaine bear, caffeine bear. Yes. Uh, a woman woke to the sounds of a black bear crushing and hitting the jackpot when he found cases of soda she had left in her car overnight. Sharon Rossell had six cases of soda inside her car, and the bear helped himself to 69 cans. Uh, obviously, uh, the bear trying to be edgy with the number 69 there, Barry. Oh, <laughs> dirty bear. Yeah, exactly. You're a dirty bear. Let me put the finger in my mouth. Oh, you're a dirty, dirty bear. Uh, Rissell said she was awake in the middle of the night after her dog started barking. Uh, a good thing you don't let Fido out there uh, when the bear is out there. That probably wouldn't end well. So yeah. once she went off, I knew instantly it was a bear. She has a way of barking that lets me know that it is a bear coming. Apparently a very intelligent dog, Barry. Uh, so I got up, and she went to the front door. So I went around that way and turned on the light. There he was in the car. Russell said she then went to the front door of her home and caught the bear in the act. She I love this part, Barry. She said she tried to reason with him but couldn't persuade him away. I, I, I want to know exactly, Barry, how do you reason with a bear? Bear. Cocaine. Cocaine bear, is how bear, you do it. How do you it. reason with a bear, bear? Yeah, cocaine. That's exactly how you would do uh, it. You would offer him some cocaine. Uh, I tried pleading to no avail, <laughs> not having any of it. I had to stand there and watch him. I tried psychology. Uh, you know, uh, of course, uh, psychology. Uh, I told him I was hunting bear. That didn't do a thing. Then she called her husband, and he told her to throw a bucket of cold water to get the bear to leave. So I did. Wow. I put, uh, that husband apparently uh, is looking for uh, other options. <laughs> 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 so I did. I poured it over his head. Nothing happened. Russell said the only thing the bear left behind was three cans of diet soda. <laughs> this bear did not want the fucking diet soda, Barry. Barry, Florida man. Wow. So I, I, so the, the, the real story here is not the bear. It's this woman, right? So I tried to, to reason, reason with, with the, the bear. bear. I told the bear, like, yeah, the bear didn't understand you, right? Go figure. So then I'll call my husband who tells me to throw a little cold water. Bears fucking are in water all the time chasing salmon, right? It's not like it's like a cat. It's a fucking bear. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Wow. So the, the only clue out of this one is, Apparently, she may have dealt with this before, picking up, you know, what she's saying, that the dog knows when there's a bear outside. She, you know, I know we got a lot of bears in Florida. I uh, I know that certain neighborhoods in Orlando actually see bears all the time. I think of a bear, and I'm usually thinking of, uh, like, the Smoky Mountains or somewhere like that. Though, of course, there's bears all across the country. <sighs> I'm gonna yeah, bears up in uh, the uh, PA area. We, I, I, we do, we do, absolutely. I'm gonna actually, yeah. Uh, uh, there was a neighborhood, Chester County, maybe a few few months ago, that had a bear out there. I am gonna say though, if you're familiar with it, it's probably not Florida. Uh, I'm gonna say it's not Florida. If I'm gonna guess, I'm gonna say I'll go Tennessee, but realizing it could be anywhere. Well, your guess of Tennessee is incorrect. However. Oh! 
your guess that it's not Florida, it would be correct because it's right. British Columbia, Barry. Our, our neighbors to the north, John Pantalone, uh, you know, so uh, what, who's not from British Columbia? I realize, John, thank you. But, uh, yeah, you know, uh, here in the uh, northern part of Georgia, we, uh, we have bears, but it's generally speaking even further north than we live. So, Thankfully, although we uh, occasionally out in the back, uh, the back 40, as we call it here, uh, we have the, the deer and the various other and sundry animals, but uh, no bear so far. That sound you hear is me knocking on wood because I don't want to be letting the dogs out and holy shit, there's a bear in the backyard. That wouldn't not end well. I have a feeling. All right, Barry, we've done Dr. Tom. We've talked about our match of the week. Little Florida man action. What do you say? We start rounding the turn and heading for home on this episode. I tell you what, we have been really fortunate with the last two guests, uh, between Dr. Tom and Jack Victory. Lots of fun, Jeff. This is, it's conversations like we had today are what I'm going to miss the most when this podcast ends. And I think you said we have nine episodes after this one and nine regular episodes. Nine. So we're staying on Patreon though. For those Patreon subscribers. Oh. And once again, we'd like to thank you. And of course, within the last few days, the time this episode comes out, uh, we have uh, some additional content that came out uh, for the Patreon subscribers. We want to thank each and every one of you, you, the other guy that didn't subscribe. <clears throat> Well, I'll keep my thoughts to myself. But if you come up and ask me at the Fan Fest, I'll be happy to share them with you. So on that note, Barry Rose, I would just remind you, Breaking Cave of Bowdrin and Barry, a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast by God Network. For my co-host, Barry Rose, for sweet Lewis Kippelman out in the city by the bay, my boy Gunny. Uh, 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 see, you thought I was going to forget mentioning my boy Gunny. No, I did not. Love you, buddy. And I am the booker. And until next week, when we'll be at episode 292. Ooh, wow. Barry. Getting close. Take this ship into port.